when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We're in the middle of our centennial series on companies that are over 100 years old, and today's a particularly exciting episode. I'm talking to Meredith Kopit-Levian, the CEO of The New York Times, which is perhaps the most famous journalism organization in the world, and certainly one of America's most complicated companies. Meredith joined The Times nearly a decade ago, and she worked in several executive roles before taking the reins as CEO in 2020. I always joke that Decoder is a podcast about org charts, and The Times has a particularly interesting structure. It's a public company. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, but it remains controlled by the Sulzberger family, whose descendants populate the newsroom's masthead and the company's executive ranks. Meredith is the CEO of the New York Times company. She reports to A.G. Sulzberger, who is chairman of the company and publisher of the New York Times, that's the newspaper. The executive editor of the Times is Joe Kahn, who also reports to AG, which means Meredith doesn't have any oversight of the newsroom. You will hear her mention this many, many times in this interview. You'll also hear her start almost every answer by saying how important that newsroom is and how everything the Times does is to support that newsroom. Now, I personally love a media executive who coddles a newsroom, but there's a few things going on here that explain that dynamic. The Times is 172 years old, so it's only recently become a force on the internet. It's hard to remember, but back in 2014 and 15, people thought The Times was doomed, that it would be replaced by BuzzFeed and Vice and Vox Media, where I work. Instead, The Times underwent a radical and sometimes painful public transformation and emerged as something closer to Netflix or Spotify, a subscription business with a huge investment in product and engineering. Meredith has led a lot of that change, and in particular, she's led the charge in turning a Time subscription into something much more than paying for news. Time's cooking and games are hit apps. Last year, she bought Wordle in a bit of a coup. There's the Wirecutter, which exists outside of the Time's newsroom and competes with consumer reports. And there's Meredith's latest acquisition, the subscription sports site The Athletic, which also sits outside the main newsroom. So we talked about that structure and how Meredith plans to appeal to a broader audience with all those products when the country is basically divided in half politically, and one half does not care for the New York Times at all. We also talked about platforms and growth. Most of the social networks have stopped sending traffic to news, and like all media organizations, the Times has a complex relationship with Google. What happens if that goes away? The Times is also in the middle of a big fight with the union that represents the newsroom, so we talked about that. And although we didn't get into it specifically, Meredith has to deal with a new activist investor called Value Act that's taken a big position in the company's stock. A lot of what she's emphasizing in this conversation is how she's playing the long game, not trying to optimize short-term profits. 
I think that came through most clearly whenever we talked about The Athletic. So keep an ear out for that. Okay, Meredith Copet-Levian, CEO of the New York Times Company. Here we go. Meredith Copet-Levian, CEO of the New York Times. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. It feels like there's a lot to talk about. You have joined us as part of our centennial series where we're talking to the CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old. Oh, I love that. It's pretty fun. I love that you're doing that. There's a lot of drama inside a company that has made it to 100 years. So the shows are pre-baked for us. Really. We just have to go find it. The New York Times is older than that. It's 172 years old. It is one of America's most storied news institutions. It's one of the world's most storied news institutions. You are a reasonably new CEO in the story of the New York Times. Tell me how you came to be the CEO and what it was like to join a company of this age. When I came to the Times almost 10 years ago, so I joined in, in 2013 as head of advertising. And at the time, everybody used the word legacy in front of the word media and like implied a negative thing. And I used to think like, Legacy is such a good word. Like, everyone wants a <laughs> legacy. Like, shouldn't a company want a legacy? And so I love that you're, you know, if there was a moment where people would say, like, it's a heritage media company. Like, that sounds better. It does sound Legacy better. is an awesome word. <laughs> it's great to have a legacy. The legacy of this place is the highest quality journalism globally, you know, at scale that there can be and continuing to raise the bar for what that is across topics and formats and the number of people we can attract. So um, the, the first thing to say is that's why I came. I came because I love the, the mission of what the New York Times does. That's why I'm here, still here almost a decade later. And my journey to CEO was just getting to do kind of more and more on the business side of the New York Times to support this incredible mission of bringing understanding, you know, bringing understanding to the world, truth and understanding at scale, and, and to see that there's a sustainable model for continuing to do that and to see that that can be a great business. So you joined from Forbes in 2013, which had also gone under a pretty substantial digital reboot right? They built the contributor network. They attracted scale in a different way. That's one story. Since then, in the last 10 years, you've been the chief revenue officer, even the chief operations officer, and then you became the CEO in 2020. That's a pretty intense view into the structure of the company. And one of the theses of the show is that the structure of a company will tell you an awful lot about the company itself. And that really what the CEO of a company does is mess around with the org chart to get the goals they want at the end. The Times is a really weird company, isn't it? It's a public company. There's a family that owns the majority of it. You're the CEO. There's a newsroom uh, that is very precious, as all newsrooms should be. My newsroom is very precious. How is the company structured right now? All super fun and interesting questions. You use the word weird for our structure. I think I would say pretty unique, special. I'd, I'd be more, <laughs> you know, I'd put a little more positive judgment. I like it. We're going from legacy to heritage and weird to special. That's pretty good. Yeah. Good to have a legacy. Good to be, good to be unique. Listen, the, I'll give you two levels of structure, but like the one I think you're poking at um, that I'll kind of proudly say is there are 5,800 people at the New York Times. There's somewhere along the lines of a couple thousand people in the newsroom for the, you know, the core report 
and they don't work for me. They work for an executive editor who works for a chairman and publisher. I also work for that chairman and publisher. And that structure has been around for a very, very long time. And it is there to protect the quality and independence of the journalism. And I have often said, I think, a story that doesn't get told enough about the New York Times and its digital transformation and its, its you know, current ability to build a larger um, and hopefully increasingly successful business is that that structure was part of the framework for our ability to keep investing in the journalism, keep investing in the newsroom, even in very, very dark times when many other media companies were not doing that. And so, you know, it's a structure that serves us incredibly well. And, you know, I suspect it will be that way for a very long time. And it's kind of a privilege and a pleasure to be the CEO of a company that is, you know, first and most committed to the quality and independence and durability and just excellence of its product. That's like ultimately what every CEO has to do. And, the company I work for has an extra backstop to that that says, you know, above everything, including our own commercial interest, we're going to protect the quality of the product. Yeah. So 5,800 people total. How many thousand people in the newsroom? You know, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, of close to a couple thousand in, in what we would call the newsroom of, you know, news and opinion journalism, the core report. Um, in addition to that, you know, we acquired The Athletic 13, 14 months ago, which is another close to 500, somewhere in that neighborhood. Sports journalists covering the, the major teams and leagues in the United States and in European football. And then, you know, obviously we've got a games app. We've got games makers. They're not Wait, is the games team in the newsroom? No, games okay. team is not in the newsroom. Um, Athletic is separate from the newsroom. Wirecutter, um, you know, we've got a, a large staff of, of really amazing folks doing editorial work on, on product reviews, um, which, you know, we think we do better than anybody else um, and, and are quite excited about. And then you've got um, lots and lots of people making recipes for, for our cooking app and, and writing about food. Yeah, I mean, that's a split that I'm really interested in, right? There's the, the newsroom, which is in that part of the structure, which the heritage structure, you might call it. And everyone kind of understands it, right? There's an executive editor, the newsroom's really protected. Then you've got a few thousand other people that are distributed amongst things like Wirecutter, Athletic, Games, Crosswords. There's another chunk, right? There's sales, there's product, there's all that other stuff. The whole bunch of business people, including... To keep it going, right? Yeah. How's that stuff organized and have you changed it? Yeah, great, great question. So the first thing to say, we, we you know, we're public, we're a, a controlled public company. As a public company, we actually report in two segments, the New York Times group, which is kind of everything except the athletic, and then we report the athletic separately. So the athletic is sort of its own entity, very connected, obviously, to the mothership and part of our bundle, which I hope we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about. Um, but the athletic is separate. Wirecutter is kind of run as its own thing. It's not reported as a separate segment, but it's it's got a different business model. Largely, it's an affiliate business. And then we've got, you know, sort of three other what I would call business side groups. There is a fairly large cross-functional digital product development organization, which is made up probably an order of the number of people of engineers who work on, you know, the software through which people find and experience our journalism and our recipes and our games and our product reviews and so forth. That's a pretty big team. 
We call it XFUN. It's the Cross-Functional Digital Product Development Organization. We've got a marketing organization. You know, the Times over the last half dozen years has come to take its brand sort of even more seriously as a, as a propellant to growth. So we've got a, a pretty sizable marketing organization that helps people understand, you know, where does the brand sit in people's lives? What does it mean? You know, how does that relate to our product? We've got an advertising organization. You know, we've got, um, we're super proud of, of the ad business we've built. Um, we intend for that business over the medium long term um, digitally to be a growth driver for the company. And we've got a probably 350, 400 person ad team. That's a full stack team. You've got, you know, everybody says sales. I always say that's like a quarter of those people <laughs> are in sales, maybe a little, maybe a third, but many, you've got many makers and creative people. We've got, a, you know, really world-class creative studio. It's part of our ad organization. And then we've got the corporate functions, which are sort of considered on the business side, but obviously, you know, um, support the whole of the organization, finance, HR, legal, um, comms, and and so forth. And um, I would say my job, so before I've, I've been CEO for about two and a half years, I was COO for three and change years. Before that, and my job there was really about getting the sort of digital center of the company um, to operate, you know, in, in the most effective way. And there, that was about, I'll go back to your word, legacy. That was about taking sort of a structure of a legacy company where you had these sort of silo, you know, you had a marketing team and an engineering team and a product team and a like a subscription sales team. <laughs> and, you know, five or six years ago, a lot of the work that I and the team of leaders around me worked on was to say, how do we actually transform this organization you know, for the business that we are, which is a fast-growing, direct-to-consumer, scaling digital business with a giant product development engine of growth, right? That, you know, most of the growth in New York Times subscriptions comes from people landing on our site and and taking through the journey yeah. of engagement or or as a customer. That's That's how most of them sign up. So we, I'd say, you know, five, six years ago, did a pretty radical reorganization of the digital center of the company to function more like what you see in the kind of fast scaling tech world, which is cross-functional teams made up of lots and lots of, of disciplines who work together on, on objectives as opposed to a kind of top-down planning organization. So that model looks like a lot of direct-to-consumer companies where you go and acquire a customer on a platform like Google or Facebook or God help us, Twitter, and they land in the New York Times, maybe they get through the paywall the first time, maybe the second time you ask them, hey, do you want to pay for this now? You clearly like it. You've come back a few times. Is that what you're talking about? Is you, you, you recognize, okay, there's a funnel here and we have platforms that are the top of the funnel and we need to get people to convert at the bottom? That's in the zone of what I'm talking about. Okay. And maybe I'll I'll step back and, and say it um, in a slightly different way, but with, with very similar meaning. 50 to 100 million people come to the New York Times on average on a weekly basis. We've got 9.6 million subscribers. So many, many, many of the people who come are prospective subscribers. And to your point, they land there from Google search or from a social media platform or because their friend sent them an email of a story or a WhatsApp message or any number of ways. Once they land there, the most likely thing to get them to subscribe is our ability through the combination of software and journalism to make them engaged in, in the next thing that might interest them. 
or to just get them to understand what can I get as a subscriber versus what is available to me as someone who just landed here. So the vast majority of our subscribers come from the work we do on that combination of sort of software and journalism, software and recipes, software and games, software and sports journalism, product reviews. Um, The vast majority of our subscription starts come from people landing on the New York Times, and we take them through a journey that compels them to subscribe or we're able to find the next thing that makes them want want to engage. When you wake up in the morning, what are the metrics you look at to see if that's working? Obviously, it sounds like subscription starts is one. That's one. I would actually say... Are there other metrics along the journey that you track? Yeah, there's like the most important thing to the place, like the, the single most important thing is... Of those 50 to 100 million people who come on average every week, how many of them can we get to engage repeatedly? That is true for subscribers. That is true for non, you know, prospective subscribers. So that's, you know, if if there's like one thing that we are, you know, more obsessed with um, commercially than anything else, it's can we be interesting enough and compelling enough to get you to come more times a week, to get you to come more times a day? to get you to read the next thing or listen to the next thing or watch the next thing. And, you know, of late, a lot of our focus is if you come, let's say you go to Google search and type in Wordle. I think Wordle was the most Google (laughs) search term last year. So a lot of people did that. And then you drop on Wordle, you land on our Wordle page, you play Wordle. Can we get you to play the next game? Maybe that's Spelling Bee. And then you play Spelling Bee and you realize, oh, this is a subscriber product. Can we compel you to buy a subscription to that? Or you play Wordle and you see on that Wordle page, there's, you know, an incredible story of what happened, you know, in in banking this week. And maybe I, I should go read that. So a lot of our work is to get you to come in for one thing show you that there is an enormous amount of other value there across news and, you know, everything we do in the core news report, which is well beyond news and recipes and shopping advice and games and sports journalism. How do we get you to know there's all this other stuff there? And how do we interest you um, to, you know, to stay and do more or to come back again and do more? That's that's what you know, if I were to say what is like the most work on the business side of the enterprise going to, it's that. And I'll just just to contrast that from something you asked me before, you know, six or seven years ago, I would say we were much more focused on the kind of straightforwardly commercial things. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the price of our subscription and how much do we discount it on promotion? We still do that. We're still thinking about that. But um, that is kind of the majority of the effort goes to how do we how do we get you to engage? Yeah, that is very different, right? What you're describing is the Times is a platform unto itself. The way that when I have it's a destination. That's the word I would use. It's a destination that a lot of people come to, and we've got to use their experience on that destination in a really purposeful way to make it a really compelling thing to stay longer, ultimately pay, and over time pay more because you're getting more value out of it. Yeah. One of the tropes on the show is that your distribution kind of just inevitably describes what you make. And I always bring up YouTube as an example of this. The nature of YouTube as a platform has created the YouTuber and the YouTube video. And probably everybody listening to this has a different conception of what those words mean, but they're more similar than different. 
How do you think about your relation to those first-order distribution platforms, to Google, to Facebook, to YouTube, to Times Publishes, to all these platforms? It feels like, in particular, for text journalism, the last great distributor is Google, and Google is going through some chaos of its own, some identity crises of its own, and everything else is a short-form video. Do you think about that as a challenge you have to solve, or we're still going to optimize for Google and see what comes next? It's a great question. I think my first answer to that is that for more than a half a dozen years, we have asserted um, the Times has to be a destination, has to be something people go to directly, ask for by name, you know, choose to have a direct relationship with. That has been a principle of our, our business, like subscription first is a principle of our business, it's been a really important principle of our business. We're also keenly aware that we live in an ecosystem, we operate in an ecosystem that, to your point, is quite dynamic um, and, and often dynamic because of things that are, you know, sort of entirely out of our, our control. <laughs> and so a lot of our work is about, not, not to be repetitive with what I said before, but once you drop there from Google or Facebook or Twitter or any number of other places. Yeah, but do you think about SEO? Um, I'm talking about the very top of the funnel, right? Are you worried, okay, we have an SEO operation, every newsroom does, we're winning the search terms on this stuff, we're getting people in here, and then we're, this is the part we can control. But the part we don't control seems, A, not long for this world as people go to video and there's not another social network or another big distributor platform that's sending people the text. And two, like the value of those customers are like almost always one and done, right? You, you search for something, you land on the page, maybe the, some huge percentage of them will stay and come back to the times and you'll get them again. But a lot of them are just off to search for the next answer or the next recipe or whatever. It, these are all the right questions. And what I would say is we are keenly aware that we're operating in an ecosystem where our funnel, our, the dynamics of what, you know, the business jargon would be our subscription funnel yeah, are yeah. not entirely controlled by us. And what you're poking at is something we've talked about um, a lot of late, which is, is there, there are kind of three things going on in the ecosystem. One is the platforms are generally, we have felt pointing to news less. I mean, Facebook, Mm -hmm. said that pretty overtly and they closed the Facebook news tab <laughs> or shuttered that effort. That that was an overt, we are going to send less traffic to news. And I would say that is kind of broadly de-emphasis on news or particular kinds of news. We we feel that. The second thing, which you're poking at, which I think is, is also um, real force that we feel, which is um, the, the sort of broad platform ecosystem pointing more to video. Yep. Um, and, and I want to say the times, you know, we are not a linear television company. We are not, you know, video is not, wasn't sort of what we did for a living. The report itself on the New York Times now is, I think, you know, incredibly multimedia, you know, and, and successful in a, in a multimedia way. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you that. Um, and I think we've done a really good job of having, you know, be showing people things um, in addition to writing them in text, to your point. You know, we've obviously put a lot of effort into visual journalism. We've put an enormous amount of effort into audio journalism. But the fact that the ecosystem it feels like is pointing a lot more to video is certainly something we think about. And what I would say there, if I were to step back, like I said, over the close to decade I've been here, ecosystem has changed a number of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, our job is one, to 
obsessively focus on getting people to come to our destination and build a direct relationship with us, register with us, give us your email address, let us show up in your inbox. You know, we've got something like 15 million people who get an email from the New York Times. The the number of, of people who read the morning, which is our awesome morning newsletters, like five or six million people. I don't mean who are signed up for it. I mean, who read it every day. So like, to me, that's a destination experience. You've asked, you've invited us into your inbox and you you open it every day. So we are obsessively focused on that. And when I talk about the product itself, um, doing a lot of the work to drive subscriptions, which I described to you before, it's to get more people to come directly, to ask for us by name, to sort of, you know, have us on the in the, that first part of the home screen of their phone, download our app or make a direct relationship with us. That's part of it. The other part of it that we've got a good track record of doing is when the ecosystem changes in ways that make sense for what our mission is, you know, making sure we we evolve in a way that, you know, helps continue to make that that prospect funnel, you know, rich. So I, I would agree with you. It's a moment of pressure um, from the platforms in the ecosystem. And I also have a lot of confidence that the Times is you know, and and other journalism organizations have made their way through those moments of pressure before. If you took Google away, if I said Google is zero, this is my thing. I think Google will only go to zero for everybody. What would your next move be? Do you really believe that? I think I've lived through Yahoo going away. I've lived through Facebook going away. I've lived through a a very strange moment of Snapchat going away. I, I feel like we would be making a mistake if we didn't envision what it looks like if Google goes away. I don't think it's going away tomorrow. But I, I do worry that every media executive that I've ever spoken to is deeply aware of how much Google drives the top of funnel, of how much the entire architecture of the internet is organized around Google's wants and needs, and how little self-awareness there is that that is a critical dependency instead of a benign relationship. I would agree with you on the, um, on the premise that Google plays a really big role in the ecosystem. And I would just point back to the comment I made earlier that for, you know, something like six or seven years, we've been obsessively focused on getting more people to ask us by name <laughs> to come to our destination. Like, so you are hedging. You know, we're, I don't know that I would call it hedging. I would say we've got a really principled view that news in particular, but all the spaces we play in beyond news now, games, shopping advice, recipes, sports journalism. These are relationship businesses. News in particular is a relationship yeah. business, right? You you, we, you should have a direct relationship with a provider who you trust and who you believe is going to make good use of your, your, your limited time, right? And the one of the things that um, has also happened with the internet, you know, which has brought us so much is it's also gotten harder and harder to find things that are like, great and worthy. And so we're obsessed with um, making sure that it is well understood how great the journalism and the recipes and the shopping advice and so forth are in the New York Times. You know, we were a marketer, we're out in the world, we make TV commercials. We, we, we are constantly trying to help people understand the breadth and the quality of what the Times does so that however the ecosystem may change, we're prepared for it. So I would agree with you that we are all, every you know business I know that's in the content business is subject to an ecosystem they don't control. And you know, making direct relationships 
getting people <laughs> to download your app, getting people to be able to do other things from your destinations that drive your business is is the game. I just interviewed the CEO of iHeart Digital, and he kept telling the audience to download his app. I feel like that that's the answer, right, is have a direct relation. Download the New York Times app. If you haven't already, please download the New York Times app. And cooking, and the athletic, and games. All right. We'll just, we're going to do a super cut of CEOs telling people to download their app at the end of this. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we talk with the New York Times as a product. Stick around. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first, you think jackpot. But then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're back. Well, I want to talk about the, the product side of it for a second. So when I talk to the tech CEOs, right, they are yeah. laser focused on product and the, the next set of features that those products could enable. And in particular, platform shifts. There's a lot of talk right now about what maybe AI was a platform shift. Maybe the metaverse is a platform shift. You run a product organization. And the one theme that comes out from all of these conversations is once you start investing in software, that cost just starts ballooning, right? And my favorite example of this is we had the chief technical officer of John Deere, the tractor company on the show, and they employ more software engineers than hardware engineers now. That is the, awesome. I would never know that. That's so great. Because the software investment just just is exponential. Is that something you're experiencing too? Okay, you've got a big product team, you're a destination. That means the destination has to be as good as the Facebook app or the Instagram app or the TikTok app, right? It has to compete at that level. Then you have to deliver journalism and then you've got this other thing that's happening inside of it where you want people to sign up and you've got the Apple ecosystem to contend with and all this other stuff. Is your software investment growing at the same pace that you would expect given how the tech companies grow their software investments? Single largest investment at the New York Times is in the journalism, period. First dollar in the place goes to the journalism, period. Um, we will rise and fall. We will rise on the quality, the independence, the breadth of our journalism, and we will fall if at any point that gets compromised in a major way. And the thing that the, the most important thing, um, just to go back to the earlier conversation that got the times to where it is today, is thanks to the control structure, we kept investing in the journalism, mm -hmm. even in really dark times, right? Kept investing in the journalism. And that, you know, I've been here almost a decade. The thing I'm most proud of is the newsroom today, even set aside the athletic and recipes and shopping advice and games. The newsroom today, the people who are on the front lines covering the world, all over the world in many more formats today than we ever did before, that is a substantially larger operation today 
take all the other stuff out of it, substantially larger operation today than it was when I got there. And that is the place um, where the most money is going to go at the New York Times. In terms of of software investment, um, that has been a huge area of focus. You know, we, we've said now for half a dozen years, we're going to invest in the journalism. We're going to invest in the digital product development that helps people find and experience that journalism and the other stuff we do. And we're going to invest in marketing so that people understand why the Times is different and worth paying for and relevant to them, right? What, what is changing is we've been investing for years now in the first two, in the journalism and the digital product development. And, and stop me here if I get too technical, but because the, the vast majority of our subscribers come not through paid marketing, mm-hmm. but through that engine, which is a combination of the journalism and the software that makes people find and experience it and want more of it. Um, as that gets better, you can invest less in the marketing. And at a, you get to a point, I would say this is maybe where we veer from a tech company or journalism company. Our journalism has to be extraordinary. It's got to have great breadth and we've got to keep innovating in the formats. We are pretty well-placed. I mean, I'm I'm not going to tell you we're not going to keep investing in digital product development, but ultimately you get to a point where you get leverage out of that investment because, um, you know, which is a financial term, but like ultimately you're, you're getting more people to come into that product. And the fact, you know, one of the things we've told, say, investors is that we are beginning to spend less money on marketing because the tech is working well enough that we can spend less money on marketing. That's, that's, I'm going to make one more sort of economic yeah. point, and I'll contrast us to maybe some of the other tech companies you talked to. Go back to that thing I said to you before, 50 to 100 million people come to the New York Times every week. The vast majority of them are not already subscribers. So we are already generating our own audience. We don't have, and, and the majority of our subscription starts do not come from paid marketing. They come from our organic audience funnel and news and sports and games. These are like powerful mm-hmm. organic audience funnels. And so that, th- that's why I would say, you know, you, ha- you also haven't seen us like lurch forward hiring, you know, thousands of engineers yeah. Every year, you know, we do that. We are investing in the product, but I would say we do it in a pretty thoughtful way. So on that note, right, you're, you're at the place where you're going to start seeing higher return on the, on the technology investment, right? Software style margins. But you bought The Athletic for $550 million last year, according to the last earnings report I'm looking at here. Last year, it lost $36 million. Is the thought that by moving it to this platform that you have that's working for the times proper? that you can get those margins out of The Athletic, or are you going to leave it on the platform that it's on now? The, the big thought on The Athletic is um, preeminent brand and global news journalism is building um, a really powerful destination and engine coverage engine in sports journalism. So that, that's the big idea, connecting The Athletic to The Times and, and being able to direct some of the power of the New York Times as as a destination, as a brand people ask for by name. Well, sure, but just on the specifics of that, there's like links yeah. from the Times to the Athletic. That's great. But what this thing yep. you're describing, this combination of technology and journalism, yep. the Athletic does not have that right now. 
right? It it, it started on a different platform. More, you, more journalism. Is it's your more point. journalism. It's way less product. Yep. Are you saying that you're going to infuse the Times product stack into the Athletic to increase uh, its subscriber retention and growth and eventually profitability? The broad answer is that we believe a lot of the digital product development playbook we've used at the Times and the advertising playbook, mm-hmm. which is also really digital product development, yeah, is what's going to work sure. at the Athletic. Yeah, sorry. If, to the extent that that's the question, absolutely. We, you know, we, we believe that um, we can you know, create a, a really powerful engine of demand, right, to, to use the sort of business term um, by applying some of the same principles. And I'll give you, I'll give you an advertising one. You know, we've got this great ad business at the Times that's powered by, you know, we've got a huge registered user base whose data we can use in very privacy forward ways that make our ads really effective um, at targeting audiences for, for advertisers we're going to build a very similar business on the athletic for a whole new category of advertisers using similar technology. So my, my answer is broadly yes to the question you're asking. That is what we're trying to do. All right. You've talked a lot about money and the first dollar going into the newsroom. I know that you know that you've got a union fight with that newsroom going on right now. And they're hearing you say the first dollar is going to the newsroom. And they're saying the thing that we want is higher minimum salaries. Why is that a blocker? Why hasn't that just happened if the first dollar is indeed going directly into the newsroom? Listen, the New York Times wants to be the place. I, I think part, a huge part of our success formula is that we can be and can remain the place where the world's best journalists come to do the best work of their careers. And they come because they feel fairly paid and they feel supported in the work and they feel like all of the things that would enable you to be at your best, you know, in your professional life, that we provide those things. That is what we are aiming for. Um, you know, I deeply want, and I would say my my other colleagues in leadership, including the publisher and chairman, deeply want to, as quickly as possible, arrive at a contract that pays our journalists, you know, substantially more, more than we have in the past, you know, more than we have in, in other contracts. And we are prepared, incredibly well prepared to do that. There's also a process to how these things work. And, you know, we, we've got to get through that process. But we are, make no mistake, we want to pay our journalists more. Um, we want this to be a place where the world's most talented people in journalism can go and flourish and feel like it's a good deal for them to be there professionally, personally, in every way that you would want to be a part of a company. Yeah, I feel like I pushed the button on the soundboard and got the answer. So I, I had to ask. I knew that was going to say. What did you say? You feel like you I, I, I feel like I pushed the button on like the radio DJ soundboard and I got the, the lawyer answer. You have a lot of goals. You have a lot of priorities. And I commend you because every time I've asked you about trade-offs, you have said something reassuring to your newsroom. We need to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Times acquisition of The Athletic and all the subscriptions that are fit to print. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. 
So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Uh, I, I want to come to the bundle now in The Athletic, but I, I, these are decisions you've made, right? You were the CEO, you led this transformation. There were very famous documents that leaked the innovation report, I think, leaked about how the Times needs to be more digital. Then there was a public transformation report. After the leaking of the of the innovation report, we just said, like, let's just publish this stuff ourselves. So now <laughs> when we write something that to us feels like, you know, a seminal strategic work that we want everybody to know, we just publish it. <laughs> yeah, build in public. Rather than have somebody else do it anyway. That's the single most software CEO thing you've said so far. And build it in public. Uh, soon you'll be doing Twitter threads about what you learned from uh, SVB going down. You'll, you're just a full VC now. That will not come from me. <laughs> I can assure you that. Let me ask you just like the big decoder question. It's a classic question, right? You've changed the strategy of the times. You've talked about changing the culture and the, the structure of the times. You bought the athletic. There's a wire cutter deal. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? That's a great question. Let me let me just make a comment on like we've changed the strategy of the times. I want to just anchor that in kind of where we are in the strategic journey. And then I'll talk about how I and we made decisions to get there. I got to the company in 2013. We'd sort of survived existential crisis, but it wasn't clear that we had a growth path. And there was a real worry, you know, that the future of the New York Times would not be as bright as its storied past, right? Like we, we'd gotten past the point where people thought, is the New York Times going to go away? Um, but it was like, could we continue to do the journalism as ambitiously um, as we were doing it for larger and larger groups of people? In 2015, this goes to your question, how do we make decisions? Small group of people at the top of the company. Um, I was lucky to be a part of this. Um, news and business, very small group, um, got together every Friday for a whole summer. I love to say that it was Friday afternoon in New York in the summer. Totally <laughs> everybody's summer, but it was like one of the more important, you know, phases of, of the New York Times. Um, my family did not love that from like two to six every Friday, I couldn't go anywhere. But that summer, we settled some of the really, really, as a, as a small group, with a lot of debate, settled some of the really big questions that, um, you know, sort of would dictate or threaten the growth potential of the business. One was that, you know, obviously we had to be a digital first company and we had to like not do things to protect print, but rather do things to grow digital. Duh, everybody was doing that at the time. Second one was we called in those, in that you know, series of summer meetings, we called subscription business first, which commercially was probably the most important thing the Times did for itself. Um, and that meant you don't build things for advertisers um, because advertisers want them. You build everything because it's good for the mission, good for the consumer. And ultimately, that should lead to a good ad business. By the way, it has. Took some time, but it absolutely has. That's now the kind of competitive um, strength of, of the ad business. The third thing, which I've just waxed poetic about for the first 20 minutes of this podcast, is we said we're a destination yeah. and we've got to get people to make a direct relationship with us. And, and the other thing we said is um, 
you know, we've got to be essential every day um, to many more people. And, um, you know, we've, we've got to be an essential daily habit. And so all of that, all of that got put into one of these reports that we published in 2015. It was called Our Path Forward, long report, the whole idea of which was a five-word business plan, which said, the New York Times makes journalism worth paying for. That is the strategy of the company, worth paying for first and most, you know, through direct-to-consumer subscriptions. But ultimately, this, you know, our journalism has got to be of such a high quality that even against a backdrop of free and less expensive alternatives, people will pay for it. Put out a bunch of targets. In 2015, we said we'd double digital revenue. By 2020, we got there, you know, a year earlier than we said. Midway through that process, we said we're going to get there early. We got to put out another target. We <laughs> said 10 million subscriptions. By 2025, we got there early. Um, you know, we got there especially early because we acquired The Athletic, but we believe we would have gotten there really early anyway without The Athletic that added a million subscribers. And so in 2022, we launched like the next chapter of Make Journalism Worth Paying For. And that I would describe as going from sort of playing defense in our business to playing offense and saying, if you said, what is the most ambitious construction of what the New York Times can can um, be and do in people's lives, we are aiming to be the essential subscription for every curious person in the English-speaking world who wants to understand and engage deeply with the world. And we're going to do that in three ways. We're going to continue to build on being the world's best news destination. By the way, that is the most important thing we do at the company. It is the main idea of the place. If we don't keep getting that right, um, everything else is kind of, all other bets are off, Like, and we we never forget that. So that's the first pillar of the strategy. Second pillar of the strategy is, you know, we're going to help people make the most of their lives and passions. And by the way, the New York Times in print for a print audience, you know, a much smaller audience did that, right? We were a cultural mm -hmm. pointer and we had sports journalism and lot, lots of other things. But we said we want to do that now at scale. And as part of that, we already had a really successful, amazing recipe app. We had already built this incredible games business, largely on the strength of crosswords, but we introduced Spelling Bee. We were sort of um, really showing that that could be a great business. We'd acquired Wirecutter and said, you know, modern day digital consumer reports, we can give people shopping advice. As part of that, as part of this strategy, we said, what are the other really big spaces? This goes to how do we make decisions? What are the really big spaces that um, curious people spend their time in? And, you know, how do we be more of a daily habit that would be synergistic with the New York Times brand? We said sports and we loved what The Athletic was doing. We considered, you know, do we go build something? And we said what we would build looks very much like what they have already built. So we acquired The Athletic, certainly that we got there faster by acquiring The Athletic. And we thought they were of a, a particular quality and had an ethos that would fit very well in The New York Times. By the way, it has. So that's why we acquired The Athletic. And we acquired Wordle to add to the games portfolio because we saw it as an opportunity to bring many, many more people to our games, which ultimately brings many, many more people to, to our quality journalism. So to give a short answer after a very <laughs> long-winded one, you know, we are very principle-driven. How do we make decisions? What are the principles we're trying to hold up to? You know, the mission is the most important thing in the place. How do you bring people more? How do you help people seek the truth and understand the principle one? 
to. You know, we need a um, we need a giant audience for our work and a growing business um, to be able to keep doing delivering on the mission. And so we made some really hard calls that I described to you before about being a destination and a subscription business first. The next chapter of that is to say we can do that even more ambitiously and try to be be essential to many, many more people. And that's what we're doing. And then three, I would just say, we ask, and this is something that's maybe particular to me. It's like, can you imagine in a tough market, in really difficult conditions, can you imagine this is still the right strategy? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I would say is, um, goes back to your structure point at the beginning of the conversation. This is a company that's been around 172 years. We play a really long game. And the question we are asking ourselves always is over five years or 10 years or even a generation, is this the path we should be on? And I would say becoming an essential subscription to, you know, millions and millions more people five to 10 years from now, I think that's still going to look like the path we should be on. And 25 years from now, I think that's still going to look like the path we should be on. Yeah. The reason I keep bringing up Google is I think that it's part of the exercise. In the tough time, a generation from now, there's no Google for traffic. I guarantee you a generation from now, there's no. Right? That whole thing looks different. And the AIs are just talking to each other on the robot internet. And maybe we're and, all and just hanging out, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, like if you're right, what I would say is we've got a strategy that is purpose-built to yeah. withstand like wildly dynamic ecosystem that we don't control. And our job, my job, <laughs> is to get many, many, many more people to make a direct relationship with us. So let's talk about that piece and the bundle, right? At the very beginning, you're like, I hope we can talk about the bundle. I want to talk about the bundle now. I think it was important to lay this foundation. The bundle, right, the the key pieces of the bundle are the games. It's the athletic, which is sports. And I want to talk about sports as sort of a unique category to cover. And the wire cutter, which I feel like I should disclose is our competitor because we also do product reviews, but we love the wire cutter. And I'm friends with Brian Land, so I'm happy it all worked out. Those things are not hard news in the same way, right? The, the news report of the New York Times is villainized by 50% of the population. You have a competitor in Fox News that when they're bored, they just look at your homepage and make a scandal out of it. That's what the Times represents. Like 50% of the people in America are like, that's the evil liberal mainstream media. And maybe you will never get them to pay, except... You've got a really good crossword puzzle, except this is where the best recipes are. And except here's sports, which if you do it right, cuts across. Is that the reason the athletic is not in the newsroom to keep it insulated so you can go acquire customers who might otherwise associate it with the brand of the times? What what a thorough question. The reason the athletic um, is not in the newsroom of the New York Times is because we are, you know, new owners of, um, you know, a very large enterprise in sports journalism that we have full intention of making, you know, we bought something great and we want to make it even bigger and even more prominent. And the way I would describe what we're trying to do with The Athletic is the preeminent brand in global news journalism um, endeavors to be a preeminent brand in sports journalism for passionate fans of the big teams and leagues in the United States and of European football. And we are um, very, very focused on doing that in a really big way. 
and in a really impactful way in sports journalism. And I'll just, you said you're friends with Brian Lamb. Brian Lamb is the awesome founder of The Wirecutter, um, who we acquired it from. And, you know, The Wirecutter was separate um, from The Times for a number of years, like, you know, much more separate than it is today. And that's just part of the, like, how do you make sure you give something like the space and the time and the energy to grow? But The Wirecutter has like a unique, set of commercial imperatives that might just be incompatible with a newsroom, right? Meaning because it's an affiliate business? Yeah, building affiliate links, letting people know how much money they're making. There's all this stuff that's built into that kind of business that we wrestle with too, and we've put up a bunch of firewalls. But if I was running the 172-year-old New York Times newsroom, I'd say, I don't want any of that in here. That's not what we do. The thing that is a through line to all of it, and particularly... The Times, Athletic, and Wirecutter, Games and Cooking, this will apply from a quality standpoint, but um, authority, trust, trustworthiness, um, mm-hmm. independence, um, just the excellence and the quality of the work, it's all got to be that. And what I would say, you know, to, yes, Wirecutter is a different business model. We're giving people shopping advice, and ultimately we make money if they click on links and, and buy the things we're advising. But those reviews are thoroughly independent. I mean, there's so much work that goes into ensuring they stay independent. And the athletics journalists operate thoroughly independently of our, you know, of of commercial interest. So I would say that's a through line to all of it. But with the athletic in particular, is it the intention to keep the brand away from the New York Times because sports has a, a bigger addressable market than news about the president? I would, I would, I would sort of frame um, the idea differently. We want the New York Times as a whole, which is everything we do—news, the athletic, all of it. We want to be for everyone who's curious. And you, you've made assertions about politics. What I'll say to you is the most sacrosanct value at the New York Times is the independence of the work. And that is true for our news journalism. Um, and that is true for the journalism we do about sports and everything else. I just described that to you on, on product reviews. So independence is, is the most sacrosanct value in the place. Are we trying to widen the audience? Absolutely. I'm telling you, you know, we have <laughs> just under 10 million subscribers. We've put out a next milestone we're aiming for, which is 15 million. We certainly don't want that to be or believe it to be the end point. And we, you know, we acquired our way into sports. The Times always covered sports, but in yeah. a much more kind of day-to-day way for the passionate fans with an idea of bringing in a much larger audience. Let me let me say a couple more things about how we think about it. You asked me about decision-making before. In our news report, you know, we're mission first. Right? Our job is to seek the truth and help people understand the world in, in the report, and we're never coming off that. And the better we do that, we believe the larger the audience um, we will we will find. And I'll just tell you, at the peak of COVID, so in like, you know, April or May of 2020, one in two adult Americans was coming to the New York Times. So I would just push back on the notion that um, we are- One in two is 50%. Only for a particular- that, but that's what I'm saying. That's 50% you know, and, of the country you know, doesn't trust you. I don't mean every day. I don't mean, yeah, but it, I just, you know, who used that COVID case tracker? That was a value, no matter, you know, that was a value to everyone. And so we believe that 
for every curious person, um, there is an opportunity for the New York Times to be valuable and relevant. And part of the essential subscription strategy is about just being more relevant, meaning more to more people, yeah. being more relevant in more ways to a wider audience. The other big tech companies that have similar strategies, you know, they come on the show, they, they, it's remarkable how much you, you sound more like a tech CEO than a media CEO. Maybe that's because of the structure. And if I talked to Joe Kahn, we would have a more media business I have the privilege of being CEO of a journalism company, yeah. and I am, you know, that we are a tech-enabled journalism company, and we need we have extraordinary digital product development and engineering and data right. talent, um, and that is how we get more people to engage with the work. The quality of the coverage and the other kinds of content we make, in combination with the software that helps people find it and experience it at scale. But make no mistake, we're a journalism company. At the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how the structure of the New York Times protects the newsroom from the business interests. But now you have another newsroom. You actually have a third newsroom that does affiliate. They're not connected at that level. That does product reviews. The business model is affiliate. They do product reviews. Well, sure. But like it's a different business model, has different pressures. They're not, those newsrooms are not protected by this corporate structure that we started out talking about. Then you have a gaming business which has wildly different trade-offs embedded in it, wildly different customer acquisition stories embedded in it, wildly different competitors, right? There's a, there's a reasonable world in which I asked the CEO of the New York Times what she thinks about the Microsoft Activision merger because she's a competitor in gaming. And maybe if you ask nicely enough, Microsoft will let you run Call of Duty in the New York Times app because they're letting everybody do it. Not sure that's a brand fit. I'm just saying, at this point, they're giving it to everybody. So you could ask for it too, right? But there's a, there's like a massive universe of things that you are doing. And you, you every time I've asked you about the trade-offs embedded in it, you've been reassuring to the newsroom first. And I appreciate that. But take that away for one second, right? That's the cost and you're, you're going to get at it. When you look at that sweep of things that the Times does to make a consumer bundle and the money you're asking for from people to be a, the provider of games and cooking and all these things... Where is your next customer? This is what I want to end on. Where do you find the next customer instead of recycling people into an ever more expensive bundle? Because I look at the industry and, you know, Netflix and Spotify and all these other subscription businesses that provide content in one way or the other are saying, okay, we're, we're out of countries to launch in. We're out of customers to find. We're, we're going to refocus on the product and extract more value from the customers we have. And I'm just wondering, where do you find your next customer? I think the world is only getting more, we're only getting more educated people with more access to the internet, with more desire for high quality information. I think the need for what the New York Times does, I've told you in multiple different ways to your point that the main idea of the place remains the highest quality journalism um, as broadly provided as, as we possibly can across kind of an ever widening array of topics and, and formats. Um, I think the demand for that is only growing. I think that the world is only going to need to understand itself for all its complexity. Wait, can I just, can I, can I just yeah. ask, I'm running out of time here, so I apologize yeah. for interrupting. Sorry. Just no, making, making the most of the minutes I have left with you. The demand is only growing, but that is not true of competitors that you have, right? If you look across the industry, the Washington Post, which should be a ferocious competitor owned by a billionaire is having layoffs and is shrinking its traffic. 
Uh, every other digital media company, Vox Media, the one I work at, had layoffs. BuzzFeed had layoffs. Uh, News Corp had layoffs, which is remarkable in the history of that company. If the demand is growing, why is only the Times able to serve it? I'll go back to what I said early. We're playing a really long game. Yeah. Um, I'm not talking about the next quarter um, or even like the immediate period we're in. One of the ways, um, one of the reasons I love being at the New York Times and I love this job is because we are playing a really, really long game. And what I'm trying to say is I think the demand for high-quality independent journalism, ours, the posts, the journals, everyone who's good at it. There are many, your organization, there are many organizations who are very, very good at it. In the long arc of history that will unfold from here, there will only be more, not less need for that. That's the broader point I'm trying to make to you. Yeah. Um, you know, our own growth path may not be linear. We've said that you know, a number of times. We're deeply confident in our trajectory to 15 million subscribers. But to your point, there's plenty going on in the ecosystem. And, and you know, we, we are quick to assert that the growth path may not be linear. But over the long arc of what unfolds from here, we believe the demand for quality news is only going to get bigger. And we believe the demand for the other things we do, games, recipes, shopping advice, really high quality sports journalism is, um, you know, we are building leading products and that's only going to help us get more people to pay attention to news when the time is right for them. Yeah. Well, Meredith, this is great. I'm going to ask you a very short-term question. That's how I end all these conversations. The New York, New York Times is 172 years old. You've got easily another 172 years to go. But for you, what's next? What's the next thing? You know, making sure that the whole world understands why the New York Times should be an essential habit, you know, in millions and millions more people's lives. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. I really appreciate this conversation. Such a pleasure. Lots of fun. Thanks again to Meredith Copet-Levian for taking the time to join me on Decoder today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit us up directly on Twitter or TikTok. We're at DecoderPod on both platforms. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Hadley Robinson. It was edited by Amanda Rose Smith. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. Thank you.